First Corinthians 14, Paul has been moving here really from chapter 12 where he began to address what uh, the beginning of the chapter says is spiritualities or things of the spirit. The church had asked him about spiritual gifts and he's been talking about those. And really from 1231 to the end of 14 or the end of 13, the beginning of 14 verse 1 where he says pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, he's had a, a one kind of basic movement, which is he's trying to transition what he's going to say here in this chapter is a childish mindset in regard to spiritual gifts to a more mature mindset in the spirit. And that mindset is the pursuit of love as the goal and the desire for spiritual gifts as a means. So love doesn't have to be pursued at the expense of spiritual gifts. Simply, they have to be held in a more proper relation to each other. The more excellent way being Christian love and spiritual gifts as one way that we love one another, that the Lord has extended that to us. So uh, his, his kind of summation of that, bringing that whole idea here, to kind of a culmination in 14.1 is pursue love, actively make a pursuit of it. That's the main goal in your life. And particularly in the gathering of saints to love one another and desire spiritual gifts. Sure, desire them. But he's going to say, especially that you may prophesy. So what he's going to do in the rest of kind of the chapter here is he's going to get to some larger kind of, or excuse me, the uh, smaller kind of practical issues. He's addressed the larger where he said, okay, love is preeminent. There's a body of Christ that works with unity and diversity. God wants all his gifts active, not just one being emphasized over all the other ones. And he's pleased in that. And we all have our place in that. And we should seek to please him in that. And we do that by loving one another, and that love is eternal. It's permanent. Love doesn't change. Spiritual gifts will. The goal always remains the same. The means might change. And now he's going to get to some very practicals in how that looks in their literal church services. So he's going to talk a lot about tongues here. Uh, he's going to make the point that prophecy is to be preferred over tongues in the public gathering for two reasons. First, the speaker of tongues speaks to God, but the prophet speaks to people. It's going to be in the next couple verses. And then tongues edifies the individual, but prophecy edifies the whole church. That's going to be in 4 or 5. And then verses 6 kind of through 25 is numerous reasons why that works out. And then he's going to just get to literal order of their church meetings. So this is going to be real kind of practical. Um, even if you might feel like as we go through this, this isn't immediately for you, you don't struggle with these things, it's still something that's helpful for you to know. Most of us are probably going to have a friend or another believer we know that's coming from a charismatic background, and it's important to talk about these types of things or know where to point people if they have questions. So. Some of these things as we read through, maybe you might feel like I don't struggle with this thing immediately. It's still good for us to know as believers, even in how we would encourage other folks. So again, verse one, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So the first thing Paul says is, in verse 2, the gift of tongues, it's always seen as an expression of prayer and of praise to God. It's not a message to men. The person who speaks in tongues, he says, does not speak to men. They speak to God. So anybody who's exercising the gift of tongues and giving a message to an individual or to a church body is not exercising the gift correctly, or at least that's not led of the Spirit. What we see in the scriptures is there's always a Godward aspect to tongues. The person who's using the gift and exercising it in the way the Spirit leads, they are speaking to God, praying to him or praising him, giving him thanks. 
That's seen in verse 15, it's seen in verse 18, it's seen in verse 28 of this same chapter. He says, the person, even at the end, who he says shouldn't speak in tongues, let him sit and speak to God himself. You can sit in your own seat and speak in tongues in your mind to the Lord, just like you can sit in your seat and say, what is this guy talking about right now? Without saying it out loud, right? You can, that can happen. So there's that, always that God word aspect. And it's what we see again in the scripture. There's only three times that tongues are, we seen evidenced in the scripture. One is right at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, where it says the people hear them speaking the wonders, the wondrous works of God in Cornelius's house where Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And it says they heard them magnifying God. And then in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, we see people speak in tongues and it just says they spoke with tongues. So what we see when it's evidenced in scripture and Paul would know these things, maybe Paul was there for some of these things. We're not sure. Could have been there on Pentecost. It's always a person speaking to the Lord. So, you know, that's important for us if we're in a scenario where somebody is speaking in tongues and an interpretation is a message given to somebody else or that that should right off the bat say, all right, that Lord is not from you then because you say a person who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. But he who prophesies then, he says, speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. The reason Paul's saying prophecy is better is because you're speaking something that's communicated in a way that people understand and they are edified, exhorted, and comforted. And Paul's going to use the word prophecy here, but he's going to use it in a very wide sense. Uh, even in verse 6, he says, he talks about coming and speaking in revelation and knowledge and prophecy and teaching. He's using prophecy in the sense of any type of truth extended and taught. So it's not just somebody who comes and tells you in your future you're going to trip on the 13th of some month or something like that, right? It's not just some... some doom and gloom type thing. Prophecy had a very wide use in the scripture. People were encouraged. David, we know, was a prophet, and he wrote songs and poems. So there's, there's a wide usage of the word. Paul is using it here in a particular way, but he says it's a way that people understand. They're edified, they're built up, they're exhorted, and they're comforted. Now, verse 4, he adds to that and he says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, which is a good thing. But he who prophesies edifies the church, which is a larger gathering. And he says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. But even more than that, that you prophesied. Here's his point. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues because he's no more important. No, unless indeed he interprets why? That the church may receive edification. So Paul's whole point here is, and he never, he, Paul does not down tongues. We're going to see that. He says a person who speaks in tongues, they are building up themselves. They are edified in their prayer and in their worship to the Lord. But the person who prophesies, they edify the whole church. When everybody's gathered together, everybody receives and understands what's being said. And in that sense, this becomes edifying for all, where the person who speaks in tongues, for everybody else to be edified, he says, there has to be an interpretation. If there's no interpretation, then everybody's not edified because they don't understand what's going on or what's being said. So Paul speaks of it as a good thing. Again, he says there in the verse, he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, not because they all could. He already made that point. He said, does everybody speak in tongues? No. The idea is, even back in chapter 7, he said, I wish you were all single like me. <laughs> they weren't, and he knew they weren't going to be. It's the same kind of idea there. What he's saying is, I wish you could all understand the blessings of this state, right? I wish you could all understand the blessings of just being able to give yourself totally to God's pleasure and not have to worry about anything else. But he knew they wouldn't. And in some sense, he's saying, I wish you could all understand what that gift is like. It's a beautiful thing. It, you, you edify yourself. But in the gathering, the, pro, the person who prophesies is greater because the church receives edification. The edification goes farther than just to the individual. It extends 
a greater difference. And if our aim is to love, then that love extends further with prophecy. Now, he's going to expand that with a bunch of different kind of reasons here. So he begins in verse 6 and says this. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or prophesying or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So the issues here again for Paul are twofold. Number one, it is edification. And number two, intelligibility. Like just the ability to understand what's being said. And what he does is he brings in just a bunch of normal life examples to illustrate that. And the first is his example in coming to them. He says in verse 6, what if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you? Paul's saying, what if I showed up in Corinth and I just spoke in tongues and none of you understood the language I was talking? They wouldn't have received the gospel. They wouldn't have received instruction. They would have missed out on everything that he had. He said, what would that have profited you? Because not because it, was, it wouldn't edify him personally, but because it wouldn't edify them. Because they wouldn't have received the truth that he needed because they couldn't understand it. He extends that. Then he says through a bunch of regular examples. Again, verse 7. What if a flute or a harp, any type of instrument is played? If it's not played correctly, right? How do you know what's being played if the notes aren't clear? Paul's like, be in her band. Do I need to explain this to you? You get it, right? These things, they have to fit. They have to make the right sounds. He then goes into even further illustrating the same thing, a trumpet for battle. They would understand they didn't have the same type of loudspeaker system. So you would have a trumpet, particularly in war, the way the trumpet was blown, retreat, okay, go forward, this side over here, move. They would understand those types of things. He's like, if it doesn't make a clear sound, people won't know what to do. He says, even in normal life kind of scenarios, we understand intelligibility, the ability to understand what's being said is very important. And without that, the sound doesn't help you. Just the sound itself is not helpful. And he says, so it's like the same with tongues. Verse, verse 9 again, unless you, or if you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. He says, you're just making noises into the air and people aren't understanding. They're not receiving anything which is what the necessary point was. And sadly, you know, it's not even just, obviously this would relate uh, to particular charismatic churches nowadays, or really anyone who's trying to exercise the gift. But even all through church history, there's been problems. There's large sections of church history where you know, the church got up and exercised a church gathering in Latin or something where a bunch of people didn't understand anything that was being said. There was no intelligibility. We're just doing some action where there's no real truth being communicated. And sadly, that's what Paul's saying, the edification. To understand, to be edified, I have to hear and understand what's being said. Otherwise, I'm just speaking to the air. So he says in 10, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them with that is without significance, the idea there is meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner, your Bible might say barbarian, to him who speaks, and to him who speaks will be a foreigner to me. So <clears throat> Paul says, look, you know there's a lot of different languages in the world. They all have meaning, just like a person who speaks in tongues is not speaking words that are meaningless or have no meaning. They're speaking a language, but if that meaning cannot be comprehended, it does not bless anybody else. That's, that's Paul's whole point. Just like, I don't know, maybe if you've traveled somewhere else in the world and you don't know that language and you're trying to communicate something by speaking slower or louder English, it doesn't work. 
because they don't understand the words and you don't understand their words. That's, that's not helpful. Paul says they're like a barbarian to you because basically, you know, people knew Latin because of the Romans and a lot of Greek and obviously the Jews would know Hebrew, but any of these other languages in the world, to them it just sounded like bar, 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 so they called them barbarians. Like everybody else in the world was, you know, the Swedish chef from the Muppets or something like that. Like, we don't know what they're talking about. They're having fun, but we don't know what they're saying. So Paul says, if that's how, if that's how I, what if that's how I approached you? As the apostle, he came into Corinth, and I'm speaking this language that you don't understand. He says, we're just going to be foreigners to one another. So he brings it back to his point again, which he repeats over and over again, verse 12. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. This is Paul's problem wasn't really that they, they had the gift of tongues. It was that their mindset or their perspective in the use of the gifts was childish. It was wrong. And what he's saying is desire spiritual gifts like that is wonderful. But this church wanted to manifest spiritual gifts. They did not want to edify one another. <laughs> they were willing to manifest those gifts without edifying anybody with only edifying themselves. And what Paul is saying is this is why you're getting it wrong. Sure, desire those spiritual gifts. That is a fine thing to do. But here's why you should desire those spiritual gifts so that you can edify others. And it's not just with tongues. Really, that's any other spiritual gift. If, if any of us are here, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks and thinking about, Lord, you know, I want to know what my spiritual gift is. Teach me. That's, that's fine. Desire that. But he, here's what you should understand. Here's why you should excel in that gift so that you can bless other people. That's the whole point. That's, that's what the whole goal is, to help other people in the body, to edify other Christians. I would hope that my father or myself or anybody else who's ever in one of these pulpits or the guys who teach in senior high and junior high or in children's ministry or the people that are serving anywhere in this church, the way they use their gifts is to edify, to build up. And it doesn't mean there's no correction or things like that. Paul's... Paul's about to end this chapter saying some serious things to this church. But the, but the point is, this church began to focus on the thing and not what the goal is. And Satan knows that. And it's always one of his temptations to just get us off track. It, especially if you're already a believer. He knows, you know, he can't take you to hell. So what he'd rather do is just make you either useless or a problem. <laughs> so if I, can't, if I can't stop the work of the Spirit in their lives, I'll twist it and I'll make it non-edifying. And, and the reality is the, the challenge for this church was to say, okay, we can desire spiritual gifts and we can desire the Spirit would manifest in our lives. That's what Paul said earlier, we should all have the manifestation of the Spirit in our lives, but whatever he wants that to look like. And I know it will look like blessing other people. So he says, get that in your mindset. Sure, desire them. Be zealous for spiritual gifts, but let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Is it for ourselves or is it for the edification of the church? That's, that's the challenge he keeps putting forward to them. Now, 13, he says, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. So Paul again says, okay, if, if somebody's going to speak in a tongue, then the first thing is verse 13. So let them pray to interpret. 
Otherwise, you're the foreigner speaking to a group of people that don't understand your language. So I think it's important. Notice he says, let him pray to interpret. Don't assume the interpretation. You always got to be careful of the person who's like, I'm going to speak in tongues and then interpret. That's a little, not sure about that. But Jesus says, you can pray about it. But I think assuming on it maybe is a little bit dangerous. He's going to say again earlier, a little bit later, okay, if somebody speaks in tongues, then hold up and let's see if there's an interpreter. This seems to be somebody else in the context, not the individual. But Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, verse 14, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. The, the Holy Spirit is working on the person's spirit, and they are praying something that's in their heart but their understanding is unfruitful. They're expressing something in a language that they don't know mentally, but what they're getting across, the Holy Spirit knows, and they can be edified in that prayer. So what's Paul saying then? Verse 15, he's like, so what's the conclusion? Well, what do we do about this? I think he's assuming some of the people who speak in tongues are like, okay, then Paul, like, what are you saying here? And Paul says, well, I'll do both. There are times where I pray in the Spirit. There are times where I pray with my understanding. There are times that I'm going to worship the Lord in the Spirit. I'm going to sing in the Spirit. And there are also times I'm going to sing in the understanding. I need to know the right time to do each. It's not downing tongues. He says, I'm personally going to do both. I don't have to do all one or the other. I'm not forcing people to make a choice. There's just a right time and a wrong time because, again, in the service, otherwise, he says, if you bless in the spirit, if you're like, I can only pray this way or bless this way, the person who comes in that doesn't know the language, how can they agree with you? Right? We, he says, how can they say amen? That means so be it or let it be so. That's why we say that. If you didn't know, it's not to make the prayer count. It's just to agree together. If I didn't say amen, then Jesus won't get that one. But the, the reality is we're just agreeing. So I pray to open the service and we agree. The worship leader prays to open the service. We say amen because we want to agree. He says, if I pray in tongues, nobody can say amen because they're like, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know what was said. He says, it's pretty simple, right? Like you, you can't even agree together then, which is the point of the gathering at your giving of thanks since he doesn't understand what you say for indeed you give thanks well but the again the other is not edified paul keeps bringing this out you're in the group setting the gathering of the church the edification of the church is the goal not your own personal even just spiritual actings they should all be working toward that goal now, Paul's going to throw in, I think, a pretty important point here. Maybe somebody would be like, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul, or something like that, because you don't speak in tongues. Verse 18, Paul says, I thank my God I speak in with tongues more than you all. <laughs> you guys think you all speak in tongues? He said, I think I speak in tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. And I think these are really important verses. They, they can't be overstated here. It's a very unique, actually, revelation from the apostle who gives us something so personal here. Um, the first thing I think is interesting is that we never actually see him receive the gift of tongues. In Acts chapter 9... When he's knocked off his horse and Jesus Christ appears to him and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? At that point, he's saved. He receives the spirit. When Jesus appears to you and knocks you off a horse and tells you he's Jesus, you're born again. Okay. So he receives the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't speak in tongues then. Then he's in Damascus and he has some weird thing going on with his eyes. We don't totally understand what that is. And God tells Ananias, go and pray for him that he can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he can be filled again, afresh. And he is, and he's baptized, but there's no mention of speaking in tongues there. So somewhere along the line, God gives Paul this gift. 
Very uniquely, though, we, we don't see him ever doing it in church gatherings. And that's important because Paul's life, he constantly used as an example with churches. He said, you saw the way I was with you, how I prayed, how I taught you day and night. He's constantly using his own life as an example. Follow our example, follow our pattern, follow our... And we don't see Paul using the gift of tongues in the gathering of the church. It's never his focus. Teaching the word of God is his constant focus. His and the rest of the apostles, Acts 242, 6-4, 6-7, 11-1, 12-24, 13-44, 15-35, 7-11, 19-20. It's on the recording. 20-32, right? You could go through the book of Acts. He shows up and he speaks the clear word of God that can be understood. And he teaches what can be understood so that people can be edified. This is, this is Paul's acting. And the miraculous things that happen were just an addendum to the word of God. Actually, in Acts 14.3, in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas are there, and it says this of them. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Why did miraculous things, why did they have the gift of miracles? To witness to the word of God's grace. So that the things they clearly said that could be understood would be believed. That was the central thing. It was always the central thing all through the book of Acts. So Paul is basically saying here, this is Paul's way of essentially saying, like, there is no reason for me in the context of the church gathering to ever speak in tongues. Because I would rather say five words that people can understand than thousands of words that they can't, because they won't be edified. It's a very simple principle there. And it's important for us to understand it's a pretty huge thing for Paul to say and to lay out there. He wants these believers to be taught. It was his example. He apparently, in his personal, private life, he said, prayed in tongues more than them all. And Paul had a pretty powerful, personal, private prayer life because he says to, like, every church, I'm praying for you constantly. That was a lot of churches. <laughs> And he names numerous people and says he's praying for those people. So, I mean, I would have loved to bet on Paul's prayer list and let Paul pray for me in tongues on his prayer list, right? That wonderful, that's wonderful. And Paul would be edified. But he said, when I get into the gathering, this is something very different because the people can't be edified by that because they don't understand it. So... He, he now is going to extend that after he gives the basic kind of, he's going to give a softer correction here to them in verse 20, where he says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. He says, listen, I don't want you guys to be like kids in your understanding of things. In malice be babes. Right, we should... We should not be experts in evil, okay, or in malicious acts towards one another. But we shouldn't be babes in our understanding. The, the fact that they couldn't get the edification and love was the goal, he's saying, is showing that you're childish. There was, again, an overemphasis of spiritual gifts that marked spiritual immaturity in the church. It wasn't that they weren't believers. They're true believers. They knew God, but they were making an immature mistake in thinking that the expression of tongues was more spiritual and more beneficial than the simple teaching of God's word or the other gifts that God had given them to express. That was what Paul wants them to understand. It's a characteristic of children to hold worthless things as more valuable than they really are. Like the dirty blanket that has a thousand holes in it or something, right? 
sense. That, that there's a, a childishness to holding on to something that really doesn't have value in the way that you act like it does. And what Paul's saying is, that's the mistake you're making here. I don't want you to be children in your understanding. I want you to be mature in your understanding. And unfortunately, this mindset is still in the church today. And we have, these chapters are inspired and have been here for 2,000 years because God knew that his church would need this and that there's many Corinthian type of churches still in the world that are making these mistakes. And again, you're going to have friends. They are real believers. Many of them are genuine and they love the Lord. But just as many believers in Corinth were the same, and it was probably some of them very difficult for them to live out their Christian lives, but they were making a mistake here. And Paul says that mistake needs to be corrected for a more mature mindset. And it's important for us to recognize that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are maybe making a mistake in the gift of tongues, particularly in the context of the church service. Doesn't mean they're not believers, but it means Paul would have something to say to them. And I think it's important to also see, again, just in a few short verses, that Paul can conceive of a church service, a gathering of believers, without anyone speaking in tongues. He's going to say, if somebody speaks in tongues, there's no interpreter, no more speaking in tongues. Paul, Paul couldn't conceive of a church service without the preaching of the gospel or the teaching of the word of God in a way that can edify people. And, and when you are at a church that feels like, man, our church service really wasn't spiritual if there was no speaking in tongues, that's sad because what that is is it's an immature mindset. And Paul says, I want you to have a more mature mindset to understand that God is doing something bigger than just having people do the spiritual expression here. And unfortunately, there are a lot of believers, they don't, they don't become unbelievers, but what happens is you have a lot of real genuine believers who when they have a wrong teaching become hurt in their spiritual life because they feel like, well, I must be an immature believer because I don't have that gift. Or other people are just more spiritual because all I'm gifted with is helping people or hospitality or something like that. Or they feel like they can't actually be a part of the body in the right way when God never designed them all to be a tongue. And immature thought processes, they might not lead to the loss of salvation, but they can harm our personal walk with the Lord. And Paul doesn't want that. He wants them to be edified. And he wants them to be mature believers in Christ. And so he's laying these things out for them clearly. And again, as I said, it's important for us because we're all going to meet people or be in places like this. And it's important that we can say, you know, just read through 1 Corinthians 14. What does Paul say in there? And allow the Holy Spirit to work on some of our brothers and sisters' hearts. So now in verse 21, he's going to bring in what is a difficult kind of section. There's a lot of arguments around what Paul is exactly saying here. I'm going to give it my best shot. He says in 21, in the law, it is written, and this comes from Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. So law being the Old Testament. With men of other tongues and of other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So here Paul, 
he quotes right off the bat from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. And what's happening there in that passage is Israel is not heeding the messages of the prophets that God is sending to them, and he's giving them a warning that he's going to send in the Assyrians or people of another, of another language that they don't understand as a mark of his judgment. And when they hear other tongues, that's going to tell them that they're on the wrong side of what God's doing. It would be a sign to them. Now, the difficulty, that part's simple. <laughs> the confusion comes with the application because Paul says in 22, okay, therefore, so how does that apply? Because God says at the end, yet for all that they will not hear me. What I think he's saying here is this. Paul is saying that the sign of foreign tongues did not cause obedience in the people of God. When those people came in of a different tongue, it didn't cause their obedience. They realized it was a sign, but to them it was a sign really of God's judgment and discipline. They should have repented and listened to the prophets who spoke in their language clearly that they understood. So what Paul is saying here in the same way, that tongues are a sign of God to unbelievers, but they still don't necessarily cause obedience. On Pentecost, again, when the gift of tongues was given, there was a sign to the nations that something spiritual was happening. God was doing something remarkable. But they didn't immediately repent because they heard the gift of tongues. In fact, they said, these people are crazy. They're drunk. What is happening here? And Peter had to stand up and preach a sermon that they could understand. And then they repented at his prophesying and gave their lives to the Lord. So what, what he's saying here is in a similar way. If somebody walks into a church service, he says, and here's everyone speaking in tongues today. It might be a sign of God or that he's working, but they might still think we're crazy like Pentecost. What they need to be a believer for believers or the person becoming a believer is to hear the truth of God spoken in their language, like at Pentecost. If they hear you prophesying, if they hear you speaking God's truth, then they will realize the divine presence in their own heart. The secrets of his heart are revealed. He's convicted. He's convinced. He hears the truth, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit is God's secret ally on every, on every heart, convicting the world of sin and righteousness of judgment, saying, like, yeah, that's the truth. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness, and you can only find it in Jesus Christ. Or whatever he might be saying to a believer who needs to hear. Tongues could be a sign, but it doesn't affect obedience. They still wouldn't hear. Prophecy says that they hear in their own language. God works in their heart. They can respond then to that. And they will say that God is truly among you. They'll fall on their face and they will repent. There's going to be an edification that happens there that's unique. Now, I think at this point, Paul has just kind of like wrapped up this emphasis again. And now he's going to go into more general rules for this gathering of believers. Uh, and I find it's very interesting, Paul, you can tell here, he's clear, but he's restrained. He doesn't want to, he wants to shepherd this group, but he doesn't want to lay down something that's so hard and rigid that it becomes a liturgy as if you can only do your church service like this. So he gives them three main principles through the rest of the chapter. The first is verse 26. He's going to say, let all things be done for edification. That's the first one. So these are rules for God's house. Every church in the world that would consider itself God's house, here, here are the three big rules, right? Here's how you need to, if you want to talk about church service and order, here's how you need to run things. Let all things be done for edification, verse 26. Verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but peace, as in all the churches of the saints. If confusion is happening, God's not doing it. You could say he's doing it, but he's not authoring that. He's not owning it. He's like, you're writing that book. Don't put my name on it. Okay. 
And verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. There is a, a proper way that things should be done and in order that things should be done in. So those are the three principles he's going to lay out among some of the specifics he's going to address here. So let's jump in verse 26 because there's a problem in this church. He says, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. It's clear that there's a lot of stuff happening at this church. So we don't know all that it was, but obviously Paul's like, so how is it that this is going on with you guys? It's funny. Some commentators actually reading this verse, they'll literally begin to talk about or make the suggestion and say, obviously, Paul here never intended a church service to be one person teaching and other people listening. He wanted the church service to be more lively. Now, if you're a Bible reader and you're reading the whole chapter, you realize that's the exact opposite of what Paul's saying. <laughs> Paul's saying, why are you actually doing all these things? You're, you're not edifying by all of these actions happening in your service. And in fact, at the, toward the end of the chapter, he's going to say, apparently this church thought they were so special, they were running their services like they made the word of God up themselves. So Corinth was just doing things that they wanted to do. Uh, and that was part of the problem. So Paul, he needs to address the way they're running their services without totally like, like treating them like children, saying, do this first, do that second, do this third, right? He's going to give them principles to kind of address these things. So uh, they were not being edifying, uh, and he has to kind of address that with them. So we don't know exactly how the early church ran all their gatherings, but we do know that what's being addressed here, again, is spiritual gifts. So this wasn't the whole church service. This was their use of spiritual gifts in the church service, because we know there was singing, we know there was prayer, we know there was communion, and we also know they already had an issue with that. There was the receiving of gifts or offerings. There was taking care of widows. First Timothy, Paul clearly tells Timothy there should be the reading of the Bible and exhortation and doctrine given. Like all of those things were also a part of the early church service. So this is, this is not verse 26, how Paul thinks that their only action in the service should be. He is just addressing what they wrote to him about. Okay, you want to talk about the spiritual gifts? Well, how come at your service you got a million things going on? Let everything be done to edification. That is not edifying. He says, now he's going to help them work that out. He's got to give them some practicals. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three and most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, notice, and let him speak to himself and to God. So for Paul, he says, okay, somebody's going to speak in tongues in the church. He says, let them speak in tongues and then ask if there's an interpreter. If there's no interpretation and the rest of the people can't be edified, then don't speak in tongues anymore. And Paul doesn't see that as the end of a spiritual service. Nor does he see it as the end of the gift of tongues because he says that person could just sit there and speak to themselves and God. Right? It's almost like saying we shouldn't have everybody just praying out loud in the middle of the service. It's going to be confusing. Sit there and pray to yourself. Like, that's fine. He's not stopping the gift of tongues. He's just giving order. And then he says, at most two or three. Then after the third one, stop. It just takes over the whole service. So don't do that. And he's going to continue this now. And we're going to see, again, his whole point is intelligibility. They, he wants the people to understand what is being said. He wants them to be uh, involved, but the people who are talking should be heard. Now he goes on, the same thing with prophets. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, 
and then let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let him first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. For the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God puts something on somebody's heart, a revelation, a truth, a message, and they want to give that. He says, okay, that can happen. And he has to say, but we'll do it one at a time. He said, if one person's sitting there and God puts a revelation on somebody else's heart in the middle of that person, they can wait, let the person finish talking, and then the next person can go and let it be judged. Again, this prophecy, if the person speaks, apparently church leadership was there, elders, people were involved to say whether that prophecy was something that was from the Lord or not. They would do that by, of course, the word of God and what they had been given and what they already knew. And what's important is Paul is careful and clear that the work of the Holy Spirit is not out of control. So that's why he says, notice verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So even though the Spirit is moving on a person's heart to speak in tongues or to prophesy, they can wait. They can do it to themselves, right? They can pause and allow order to happen in the church. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. When people say things like, I couldn't help but I had to, the spirit made me, what Paul says is, that's not the Holy Spirit. Could be something else. Could be somebody just stirred up through emotion. Again, it's not to say that person isn't saved, but what Paul says is that type of action, God is not the author of. And it's a childish way to view spiritual gifts. It's not a mature way to view spiritual gifts because the mature mindset of spiritual gifts understands the expression of my spiritual gift is not just for me, it's to edify others. And that's what the goal of the Holy Spirit is. And Paul wants them to, again, recognize self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I will say this. I'm going to say something positive because, again, probably most of us here, that's not what your problem is. Like, I've been dying to speak in tongues, and I know Mike's not going to let me, so this is going to be... No. Uh, the reality is probably most of us, our problem is the opposite, where we're afraid of maybe what the Spirit's work in our life might look like, or we're afraid to jump in, participate. What is that going to... Here, this is important. The Holy Spirit is never going to make you out of control. He's not going to turn you into a nutcase, right? He's not going to make you do things that you wish you couldn't have done. Or that's, that's the Holy Spirit is totally under control. And what he authors is peace, okay? So you should be probably more willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit because we need his peace. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We know that. Holy Spirit's always under control. Jesus was always under control. I will speak for the Corinthians, at least here. I'm going to give them a positive. At least I could say they obviously wanted to participate in the service. <laughs> they came excited about Jesus and they wanted to pray. They wanted to praise. And maybe our, our problem, on the other hand, is we're self-conscious and insecure and, and our our contributions can be a little colder sometimes. At least they had it like they wanted it. So I'll give that to them. They just got a little childishly overzealous. And Paul's like, okay, we got to reel this back here a little. They're believers. There's some good things going on. And, right, we all have issues on one side of the coin. There's some people that go a little too far with things, and there are other people who are scared to go anywhere with things. And probably on the other side is, is more of our setting where we can be a little afraid, like, what is it going to mean to give myself over to the Holy Spirit? You don't got to worry. He only authors peace, not confusion. You go somewhere and things are, there's total confusion. This isn't the Holy Spirit. It could be emotion. It could be human flesh. It could be organization. It's not the Holy Spirit, though. And that's what Paul wants them to see. 
the people speaking in tongues, the prophets, you can wait, you could take your turn. Everybody can be blessed by what's heard. You can stop after three. And they stop so that, obviously, the other things in the church can happen. And God is not interrupting himself. He's not starting something and then doing something else. The Holy Spirit is not, you know, leading Paul to be teaching. But apparently Paul taught a long time because we know the one dude got so tired he fell out of the window and died. So Paul, Paul would teach into the night. Paul, Paul apparently sat there and taught people for quite a long time sometimes. So the reality is there's other things happening in these church services. And Paul wants them to understand the Holy Spirit's not interrupting himself. He's in control of the whole thing. Now, 34, he's going to go in and add something else here that's a whole lot of fun to talk about. <laughs> so he says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive, as the law also says. And, at, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for the woman to speak in the church. So obviously these verses are confusing. There's, there's two total thoughts here. Either Paul is making a complete ban on all female speech, uh, but if, if that's happening, then obviously that puts you in conflict with what he already said in chapter 11, where he said women are praying and prophesying with their heads covered, and they were supposed to do that in the church. So in the same letter just a few chapters ago. So Paul has not forgotten what he already wrote. So Paul is not giving a full ban on speech here. And, and in fact, I don't even think he needs to do that because he already just basically told the whole church, you need to talk one at a time. So be quiet when everybody else is talking. He already said that don't chatter too much to basically everyone, okay, men and women. So what he's doing here then is he obviously has to be talking about a specific type of speech that he doesn't want from the women, I believe this command here, the reason it seems very total, is it's similar to what Paul does in Romans 13, right? When he talks about obedience to government in Romans 13, he gives a clear command. He doesn't actually give any excuses. He just says, you need to obey the government. And he died not obeying the government, right? So why does he not give any excuses? Well, because he assumes they already understand everything else he said to them. It's pretty simple, actually. He knows that these things aren't contradictory. He doesn't have to say to them every time he gives them a certain type of command to not to forget everything else he said. It's like Jesus in John 7, again, says, judge not lest you be judged, or excuse me, in Matthew 7. Then in John 7, he says, judge righteous judgment. So he tells us not to judge, and then he tells us to judge. Is Jesus contradicting himself? No, his point is, there's a right way to judge, there's a wrong way to judge, okay? So Paul has commanded women to speak, and now he's commanding women not to speak. So what he's doing is saying there's a right way for women to participate in the service, and there's a wrong way for them to participate in the service. I think you can also tie this in a couple different ways. The word that Paul uses there for speak he says he wants them to be silent. They are not permitted to speak. Is really used over 300 times in the New Testament. It's very common talk. Talk, chatter, question, argue. Also, he says, in the churches, the law is saying it, and he wants them to do it, or excuse me, not to do it, notice, at the very end of 35 there, in the church. So he's not saying, like, women can't speak ever or something like that. So it's obviously something related to that. Paul is again referencing the law, the law being Old Testament. I think he's talking about Genesis here, which he just did in chapter 11 when he referenced the Old Testament, Genesis and creation. He does the same thing when he talks about women in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And he even uses the same language of shame 
as he did from chapter 11, where he says it is shameful for the woman to speak in the church. When he talked about it would be shameful for a woman to ignore how God created her and just shave all her, head off, shave all her hair off her head. So what's happening here is this, and here's what I believe Paul is saying. It's not a prohibition for women to participate in the church. It is a prohibition for women to control or manipulate the meeting. He is not asking, the context is really them, again, judging kind of the prophecies going on, the speaking out within the church meeting. I think what he's saying is, I want the women to keep silent in the churches in relation to the order of the church. The, a prophecy is given and then that prophecy is judged. Who's doing that? The elders of the church, the people running the church. And he says, I don't want the women to chatter, argue, and involve themselves in that. Because they should go home then and speak to their husbands. He goes back to the created order. The order always being that God has given the rulership, the oversight, the shepherding of the church to gifted men. That's what the Bible consistently teaches. That's what, again, was reflected in chapter 11. We see the same type of language here. And he says, go home first and talk to your husbands about it. Instead of arguing, I, I will also probably say, this probably happened to Paul the Apostle a lot. Jewish people can be argumentative, right? And Paul showing up and turning over their whole culture. And I bet there was a lot of times where there was quite a bit of chatter in relation to the things that Paul was saying to them. I bet as this letter was being read, there was quite a bit of arguing about it. And I believe the role, again, that God has laid out related to men and women that he's already addressed, Paul is assuming they're taking that right into context, and that's why he can say this the way he says it. He doesn't have to add in all these other qualifications because he understands the type of speech he's asking them to not participate in, which is that which would direct the service. He says, don't argue with the pastors and the elders and the leadership of the church about that. Go home and talk to your husbands first about that. Let them be the first line of that type of instruction and conversation to you. So there, if you don't like it, you can talk to Brian afterwards. Really, that's what he told me to say. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, if you have questions, we'll talk to you. Now, verse 36. So he's gonna say, <laughs> this is pretty stern, or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. This is, seems like a quick turn, right? <laughs> like, whoa, is this just about the ladies or something? No, that's not the point. His point is, he says, obviously, there were people in the church, prophets, people who thought themselves to be spiritual, that thought they could ignore apostolic teaching in, related to the, in relation to the church for some type of pseudo-spiritual experience because we're led to be prophets and we're speaking in tongues. And Paul literally looks at them and he says, like, are you the first church that ever existed? Did the word of God come to you first? You're the ones who kind of originated this whole thing? He already had to say to them, even in relation to the head covering stuff, like, none of the other churches are arguing with me about this, guys. He said to him about the dude in sexual sin, like, even the world understands this is wrong. But the Corinthian church thought, it, thought itself, there was a segment at least that thought itself elite, that they could kind of act out in ways that it didn't really matter what anybody else thought. And Paul here is bringing in a pretty stern rebuke to them and saying, so anybody who's spiritual or who's a prophet let him acknowledge this. This is pretty powerful in 37. The things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. If you think you're spiritual, or if you think you know the way that this stuff should get run, then you should acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is what Jesus said. That's, that's how you could tell a person is spiritual. 
Again, really it was the Great Commission. That was what they were told to do, to go out and to teach everything that Jesus commanded. And that was what the apostles were doing, and this church was ignoring some of those things. So Paul says, speaking in tongues or, or your spiritual actions are not a proof of your Christianity, per se, or the validity or spirituality of it. You know what the proof is? Submission to apostolic doctrine. That's what the proof is, that you agree that the word of God is the word of God. It's not your spiritual experience. It is the truth that Jesus displayed and gave. Acts 2.42 again says the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 1 John 4.6, John will say, we are of God, and he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Paul says, if you're spiritual, you will hear that what I'm saying to you is the commandments of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what a true spiritual person looks like. They knew they were reading Scripture. They knew they were writing Scripture. These people knew through the Holy Spirit what truth and error was. And they needed to acknowledge that. And Paul says if they don't, they're not really spiritual, as they say they are, or a prophet like they say they are. First Peter three fifteen and 16, Peter would say this, Consider, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. I love this in which some things are hard to understand. I love that Peter admitted, ah, some of what Paul said is hard to understand. He's an apostle who lived with Jesus, and that was hard to understand. So that makes me feel good. But he says, which untaught and unstable people twist their own destruction. Here, this is important. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. Paul, Peter puts Paul's writings and epistles on the same plane as the rest of the scriptures. They knew what they were writing was scripture. And what Paul says is, if you think you're spiritual, you will acknowledge that what I'm saying to you about spiritual gifts and tongues is the commandment of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what real spirituality looked like. And he says, if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. If that's where we're going to be, then let them be there. I, so those things translate nicely, right? Ignore those that choose to be ignorant. I guess in our more modern vernacular, we could say suckers going to be suckers, right? Like, it's actually even more powerful than that. It's, it's kind of saying, like, if a person chooses to ignore God, they will not be recognized by him. It's really even kind of deeper than that. If they're going to ignore the commandments of Jesus Christ, then they will be ignored by him even deeper. And certainly the church on the other side of that, which is what he's commanding them to do. So Paul is drawing a fine line between him and other teachers. Now, 39. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. So desire earnestly to prophesy something that will bless everyone. And again, do not forbid to speak with tongues. Paul is not getting rid of the gift. He is not forbidding it. He is instructing it. And Paul would have something to say to any church or ministry that would kick somebody out for, not, for saying they speak in tongues. Sadly, again, on the other side, the charismatic side needs some instruction. But on the other side, there are people who, if you're like, I'm a believer, I speak in tongues. Oh, you can't be a part of this here or our mission organization, or our church. Paul says, you're in the wrong. What would you do with the Apostle Paul? Sorry. You don't measure up to our missions organization. You speak in tongues. <laughs> right? Paul says, no, you can't forbid that. This is a true gift and work of the Holy Spirit. But desire earnestly that you would prophesy, and to sum it all up, let all things be done decently and in order. That word decently is only used three times in Scripture. The two other times, Romans 13 and 1 Thessalonians 4, are translated proper. 
there is a proper type of life for what we profess. What I profess about myself as a Christian, what God has done for me, what, I, what he's given to me in his Holy Spirit, there is a life that is proper to that. Our worship should reflect it correctly. Our prayer should reflect it correctly. Our love for one another should reflect it correctly. And how we think about edifying the people around us should reflect it correctly. It should be done decently or properly and in order. Order being most directly related to the priesthood. Most of the times that word translated is translated to the priesthood, the order of Aaron or most of the times in the book of Hebrews, the order of Melchizedek, which Jesus is a priest after. Paul would encourage the Colossians and say, I'm blessed by your good order and your steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Apparently Colossians has stuff ordered, had it together. There's a good order that reflects the work of the Spirit in the right way. And Paul says, that's what should define your service. So let's stand. We're going to pray. Now, there's a lot in there, but good things for us to know and to keep in mind, certainly. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you're willing to instruct us. Lord, we thank you that you don't want us to be babes in understanding. You want us to be mature. You want us to love you and to love those around us. And Lord, I just pray that those things would be true in our hearts. Lord, thank you for the way that Paul loved this Corinthian church, even with their immaturity in various ways. I pray that you would give us his type of humility and heart and eyes for those around us who might be immature in you. And Lord, I also just pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that we would be people that have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand what you have to say to us, Lord. I know personally I don't want to be in the position of ignoring something you have to say to me. So give us the right heart, Lord, to receive whatever that might be personally and to fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.